this new thing called social media. You should check it out sometime. Is that like uh, like MySpace? It's like where they have the internet on computers and stuff now. Yeah, MySpace. The internet on computers. So like Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah, Oregon Trail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Oregon Trail. That's basically how you learn how to farm too, isn't it? I'm Zach Johnson, and I farm in West Central Minnesota. I'm Mitchell Hora. This is Fieldwork. Thanks a ton to the Walton Family Foundation for their support this season. We're the podcast by farmers, for farmers, and about farmers. Are there any prepositions that we miss there? Near, next to farmers? We better move on. <laughs> this, is, this is getting deep quickly, and we know that we can get into the weeds way too far. Here. Way too far. So this is the third part in a special series about Washington County, Iowa. That's where Mitchell's farm happens to be. Yeah, and, you know, really carrying on on the conservation culture here. We've been digging back through and uh, starting from all the way back on why did Washington County, you know, become that conservation culture? What the heck's going on here? Who are the leaders? What's going on with when back in the day they started to decide we're just going to have a conservation culture in Washington County? Yeah, I don't know what's going on down there. But you guys have got 99 counties in the state of Iowa. Okay, so the math says that Washington County should get, what, like 1%, 1.5% of the state's conservation incentive dollars, but you guys actually get like 10% of the dollars coming through the state? Well, in my understanding, as I've talked with like my local NRCS people about that is everybody, of course, gets the same allotment at the beginning. Yeah, you know, about 1% of the total allotment for like cover crop cost share dollars. But then at the end of the year, any of those dollars that aren't, that are still left over, other counties can utilize those dollars. And that's when you guys seem to come in and mop things up, huh? Yeah, we just come in and mop it all up. But yeah, and I've, I've even heard that we're utilizing some of the leftover dollars from other counties, but there's still people that sign up for cover crops in Washington County that don't make it high enough on the list to get the cost share dollars. And it's all first come, first serve. So a lot of the cover crops are put in 100% out of that farmer's pocket. It's pretty impressive that you guys have so many farmers right right there directly in your area that are willing to work like this and do things like cover crop and work for those dollars and actually make the difference that, you know, essentially these dollars are trying to make. Cover crops have lots of different benefits too. And lots of different benefits to that taxpayer, which is obviously where the funding's coming from. So, but it helps to benefit water quality, sequester carbon, re- reduce erosion from wind or from water, keep those nutrients out in the field, and put more dollars back in the farmer's pocket. It's really cool though that there's some of these farmers that have been utilizing cover crops for a really long time, like 20 years plus. And in this episode, we're going to talk with Rob Stout. This is going to be his 12th year with cover crops. Daryl Steele, right around 10 years. But these guys have been no-till for way longer than that. They've been no-till for decades. I'm sure you've noticed that when we talk to guys like Rob and Daryl that they always seem to mention other farmers who kind of pointed the way down there. And it seems like there's there's like this group of maybe a dozen or so well-known farmers down in your area that over the past, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years really kind of made that difference and just kind of took the bull by the horns, as they say, and went for it. Well, it's kind of interesting, too, that we talk about Daryl Steele, but his dad, Oscar Steele, was really involved. We talk about Steve Berger. Well, his dad, Dennis Berger, was really involved. These guys are like already second generation 
of some of this conservation mindset. That's where I'm coming in now, like third, fourth generation into this kind of conservation culture. I'm really excited to share this episode here with Daryl and Rob. They've been really great mentors of mine and farmers that I've been able to learn a lot from. But before you listen to our conversation with them, make sure that you listen to our other episodes about Washington County, where we talk with Jim Freer, Dave Moeller, and Paul Reed, because we name check them quite a lot. We are here in Washington County, Iowa with Rob Stout. Rob, give us a rundown about your farm out here. Well, we farm about 1,100 acres of corn and soybeans, and we raised about 100 acres of rye this year. Feed out about nine to 10,000 head of hogs in a year's time. So the rye that you had this year, you said about 100 acres of rye. Was that a feeding thing, a cover crop thing? What was the plan with, with that, or, or is it just a, you're going to market it as a normal commodity crop? I'm using it to feed my hogs with, so I'm right now I'm using it on 10% ration. I'm replacing 10% of the whole ration with rye, and we readjusted the rations to account for the nutritional amount that's in the rye. So that's what I'm doing now. I, I, I planted it to do it rye just to, for feed, and I wanted to see if I get a third crop to get a little more diversity in the soil, and hopefully... I'm actually following it with, I planted like four, four or five different uh, species cover crop. So, so Rob, back us up now to kind of the beginning. And how did you get into farming overall? And uh, tell us about just kind of how this all came about back in the day. Okay. Well, my father was a farmer and his father was a farmer. And uh, the home place just a couple miles away from here is where my dad grew up and his dad had that farm. And so... Uh, We've been in the farming in this part of Washington County since I think about 1916, maybe. That farm was bought in 1926. Uh, we bought this in 1990, uh, or we moved here in 90. We rented it, and then we bought it later on. So uh, I started farming in 1978 as I, after I graduated from Iowa State. And uh, we sort of just did the things the same way my dad did, and then all of a sudden there was these— uh, field days that our extension director, Jim Freer, was putting on about this new thing called no-till. And so I went to a few of those, and we researched it and thought, I think we need to do that. And so I bought a no-till planter, and uh, we uh, so we started no-till planting in 1983. And uh, that worked out really good. It was, We did it for erosion purposes because we have some rolling ground, a lot more rolling ground. This is sitting right here. And uh, also, just a lot less time spent on the tractor. <laughs> Didn't need to be sitting around on a tractor. All that preparation that some of the neighbors were doing. So uh, we were glad to do a little less trips. And uh, we learned later about the soil health benefits of that's kind of new. That's more than the last 10 to 15 years. Did you see a, a slow change, you think, in the soil when you switched to no-till? Did it take some time or did it immediately work well? Well, I say it took some time. It, it, uh, we made it work. We, we were just committed, so we knew we were going to make it work. So, uh, we had to change some things. We started out with a wavy colder cause that's kind of what came on the planter back then. And, uh, we've changed to trash whippers, residue removers on the front of the planter. We've added different attachments on the back. And as you talk to Dave Moeller, you'll find out that he's, he set up our planter with, with all the 
everything we have on from residue removers to spiked closing wheels to uh, Keaton seed firmers to drag chains to our nitrogen that we add to the planter. So those things have happened over the last 20 to 30 years, really. As things we find that work better, we, we adapt them and change. Can you tell me a little bit more about Dave Moeller that you talked about? <laughs> sure. Yeah, Dave's a, he's a former mechanic at a machinery dealership who opened his own shop here less than two miles away from me. And he deals on a lot of short-line equipment, which a, a lot of the planters, uh, if you buy them from the major companies, like when I bought my first no-till planter, it just had colders on it. And a lot of the short-line companies have been a little more innovative about uh, engineering products that work better for for no-tilling, for putting on, for using cover crops or adding fertilizers. For So he deals in all those companies and he finds out the best ones and, and he's, he sets up uh, planters all over the Midwest probably. So step yep. number one after you went to the meeting was, okay, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to get a new planter. How was that conversation with your dad and how on board was he when you said, hey, like, I think we should do this? He said, well, if you buy the planter, we'll go go with it. So, <laughs> so you he, had to put in the money. He owned most of the rest of the equipment anyway. We were, we were sharing equipment. We were farming together. And uh, he had, as I remember, when I was just a little kid, uh, everybody around moldboard plowed and then worked just disted and then field cultivated and harrowed it. You know, there's four or five trips. That was just the way it was done back in the late 50s and early 60s. And I remember him going, we went up to Clone and, and bought a, looked at a chisel plow and bought a chisel plow. And that was conservation tillage back then because we changed from moldboard plow to chisel plow. And so uh, he was, he had conservation on the mind way back when in the late 50s, early 60s. So it wasn't too hard to, to encourage him. So at that point where you guys had the hogs as well and we're getting hog manure out there. Now, obviously, it wasn't the liquid hog manure type stuff like we've got right now. Right. We had hogs outside in in sheds on cement cement pads. Yeah, but it, we considered manure more of a waste. We just hauled it to get rid of it and spread it on top. And we had cows at a cow herd, and we had a cow feedlot, cattle feedlot too. So we, we just hauled everything on top, and we had worked it in. And so after, after we started no-tilling, we— we had to find out a way to, to get to utilize that without working it into the ground like we had in the past. Why do you think there's been such a high rate of adoption when it comes to the, the conservation tillage and the stuff we're talking about here in this county and in this area? Well, there's just a culture of conservation here, I think, in this area. And there's just, there's some farmers that are more entrepreneurial than others. And you're, you're going to talk to some of them and uh, they're willing to see things that are happening, read farm magazines, go to farm shows, go to crop tours and find out what's working and what's the better way to treat their soil and treat our land. And so I think people have been more willing to adapt to that around here. And as 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 one farmer does, and, and you get a whole crowd of people go to field day and uh, others pick it up, and then you have more, more crop tours and field days and other people pick it up. So it, it becomes the norm or at least more accepted. Whereas, you know, the people that started were the, the weird people that were doing something different, that weren't more blood, more blood piling and doing all those things. Was that you 40 years ago? Were, were you the one of the weird ones <laughs> well, that, that I was a, it? Well, I was enough behind the real starters that I 
I was less weird than others, I guess. Okay. I, I was maybe in my, right in my immediate neighborhood, I was the weird one, but I wasn't too far away from guys that were doing it, so I was uh, not completely weird. I have to imagine if you see multiple neighbors doing something and see that it's working for them, that it's got to be a lot easier to to take that plunge and, and actually risk it yourselves. Because there's a difference, obviously, between talking about it and actually doing it and putting the risk out there when it's your dollars and it's your field. But if you can see that the people right across the field from you are having success with it, I think that's really helpful. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and that's those of us that are doing those, making the change, we want it to be successful. So we're working hard at it and and people are watching. So you want to make it successful and, right. and, and be a something that other people want to grab onto. Yep. Was a lot of that at that meeting that Jim Freer put on in, in 83? Like, tell us more about that. Like, was there a bunch of people there or was it basically there was like four people and it was like, okay, maybe we're going to do this, but we don't really know. how. What was the There feel was of quite it? a bit of interest and it actually started probably even maybe in the very late 70s or very early 80s at least. And there was several field days, and he'd scatter them around the county, you know, at Oscar Steele's place, at uh, uh, Dennis Berger's place, uh, different places. So I, I went two or three of them, and I just went, I, I researched things a lot before I make changes, and so I was convinced it was going to work. And the Reeds here had got one a couple of years before me, and, and they actually won the state no-till Cornell contest, I think in 1982. I might be wrong on the date. I think so. So, as we prepared for this, I didn't realize that the extension agent was a really key part. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's no way you prepared for this, Mitchell. <laughs> what? Oh no, I didn't prepare for this. But so, but as we as we dug into so as we dug into coming into Washington County, I obviously didn't prepare. We didn't have a script for this one though, so I can't get shamed on that one. Right? Because if we would have had a script, we well, both would have sat it. down and studied it. No, I would not have read it. But <laughs> the, one of the guys that's come up in this is this Jim Freer, the extension agent. What was it that he really like said, him holding people's hands? Like, what was it about this guy that people liked? And how has that evolved here today um, into some of the people that we have here locally? Well, Jim is a real personable fellow and a, and a, a big leader in the extension. And I think a lot of people had a lot of respect for him, as I did. And I was just a young farmer coming out of college and, you know, I met the extension director and he uh, he was willing to spend some time with me and, and talk about things. And uh, I think just had a, a lot of respect for the farmers in the area. So uh, when he set up a field day to come, and there didn't even have to be a meal back then, uh, you'd get, you know, 20, 30, 40 farmers to come out because they wanted to see what he had in mind. It, it is a fun thing. It's always a fun thing, I think, when, when the farmers can get together like that. Any kind of a field day, you know, take the middle of the afternoon on a nice day. It's just fun to go see all the neighbors, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. At least pre-COVID. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we can't do all these things now. And we've had a few field days here, but we always have a meal, so that, that's what brings the people in And now. that too, yes. And you mentioned that, you know, Paul Reed and those guys had one of these no-till planters. Did you guys work with them and getting your planter or where were you able to get the equipment from? Where'd you buy that planter at? Well, my first planter, I just went to the John Deere store and they bought the, you know, Max Merge 7,000 planter and with Kohler's on it. And that's all it made it a no-till planter. It had Kohler's on the front. So it wasn't too special. Yeah. We've, and that was just from right here in town? They were yeah, right in Washington. Yep. In Washington. Okay. At so the that John was Deere a, store. That's one at, of my favorite stores, Mitchell. Gosh, I know it. Is, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's hilarious. That like, just have a, 
be no-till is just put a wavy coulter on it, which is basically like kind of a wavy pizza cutter for, right. for all the folks at home. It's a wavy pizza cutter instead of just having these little discs that just kind of open up the ground a little bit because the ground was all soft and fluffy when they were tilling it. So you didn't take a whole lot to get your seed down in there. Well, now we're going to have this wavy coulter to kind of chop it up a little bit and then we're going to plant right on top of that. We're going to call it an entirely different planter. Entirely different planter. Yep. No-till, but what was the name of it? The Maximerge. Max, like, yonder Maximerge 7000 planter was the first one. Maximerge 7000. That yep. is awesome. <laughs> so in 83, we're all in, no-till. How did that work from the beginning? Was it all flowers and butterflies from the beginning, or or what was the, what was the initial story? We had a major drought in 83. And uh, didn't rain very much at all, and it got really, really hot too. But actually, as we, as it turned out, our yields, as we could talk to neighbors and things, they were actually a little bit better. Our corn, particularly, was better being no-till than it was for those that had tilled it and dried out the soil. So we had saved a little bit of moisture for later on in July when we needed it. I wasn't around at that time, Rob, but I heard in the '80s there was a farm crisis going on too. That too. But yeah, it was, it was tough. There wasn't a lot of money to spend because a uh, couple of droughts, 83 and 88, and then in between them, <laughs> the prices were pretty poor. The drought is the only thing that made a good prices, and we didn't have anything to sell. In fact, with our hog and cattle operation, we were actually buying expensive corn to feed the livestock because we didn't couldn't raise enough. Oh, wow. So now, even to just keep the own operation going to feed the livestock and keep the animals going, you had to even buy more because you couldn't even produce enough just because of poor weather. That's right. So we were glad we had a good banker to mind us. That's a crucial thing. We actually haven't really even talked about that, of how important the banking system or what there was other farm programs that came about in the 80s too. Did you guys, were you, were you able to participate in some of that as they well? They started having set-asides to uh, reduce acres so that we could build up the price, but that didn't really work all that well because our neighbors to the south and Brazil and Argentina just cranked up their production a little bit more to make up for what we didn't raise. Yeah, I remember that set-aside being a big deal back in the 80s. I, w I was pretty young, so I didn't exactly understand how it worked or why it was going on, but I remember uh, every year we had those set-aside mm -hmm. acres and dad talking about it a lot, and my dad's got some pretty crazy stories from the 80s, and they really set him for his career because they forced him to do a lot of different management practices and really look at things a little bit differently. And, uh, you know, he'll even say today it was, it was some of the hardest times of his life. He didn't enjoy it at the time, but looking back at it, it was actually good for him. You learn from the tough times and hopefully we've, we learned some things that we're able to apply when the next tough times come around. Right, right. Because at that time, it was trying to look at, okay, how are we going to dial back and where are we going to focus on profitability? But at that point, we didn't have all the fancy technology and the yield monitors and all that stuff that we have today to help to make those decisions. So how are you guys going about thinking about that, I guess, on where you're going to do the set aside or, or was there a big fancy uh, scheme behind that. Yeah, we didn't have yield maps to tell us where the worst parts of the field were, but you kind of wanted to put them in, the, in your poor ground uh, so that you weren't giving up the best piece of ground to put in set aside. And then and occasionally, like uh, probably in 88, when the, uh, it got another drought, I think they opened up the set aside for grazing or haying, and so we, we made what little there was there and, and fed the cattle. 
So, but you you try to put it on less productive grounds or or make endros where you're going to drive around and mash them and, instead of mashing up the good crops. Okay, so let's jump forward here a little bit because there's a lot of other things that you've done as well that I want to make sure that we that we talk about. So, no till for a long time. But then how did that evolve into things like cover crops and some of the, some of the other stuff you're doing now? Okay, I think the thing that brought about cover crops or made me thinking about it anyway was around 2007, 2008, we had a couple of really wet springs, and that seems to get to be more of the pattern recently. And even in our no-till, uh, long-term no-till, the year that was – Following the year beans, and we were planting corn into that, no-till into beans, we were getting some erosion. And so we need to do the next step. And so uh, I had an opportunity to try out some uh, cover crops. We flew on some cereal rye in 2009, did on a 10-year study with uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa and Iowa Learning Farms and set it up here north of the house here. And we just decided we're going to make that work, kind of like we did with no-till. So we had a few more management changes we made. And uh, we found out that we could uh, get good or better yields with with cover crops and uh, provide good erosion control. And as you found out, the soil health benefits, which we didn't even know about when we started, but those are even better for us. Yeah. So a little caveat there. Rob's been doing this long-term study and has seen some amazing yield results. I from what I've seen better than any of the other trials that they have in their study in terms of being able to directly see yield benefit in a replicated side-by-side trial by just utilizing the cover crops. Is that what you've seen fairly consistently? I would say we saw that more towards the, in the last five years of the study, the first five years we were just learning and we decided we had to change our nitrogen program a little bit. Uh, The first couple of times we had corn, we, either lost a bushel or two. It wasn't major. It was never significant or or broke even on it. And, of course, we had the cost of the cover crop, so you want to actually make something so you can pay for it. So we uh, actually put on more nitrogen with the planter. And we kind of, we, uh, we do our nitrogen. We split it about three to four different times during the season. And because the cover crops, because those uh, microbes that are, they're decomposing the cover crops, they're tying up, the nitrogen and keeping it from your corn, they they kind of get first shot at, don't they, Mitchell? <laughs> so uh, we needed to price, get some nitrogen at the right time for the corn so they get that early start. Now, it's available later on in the season, so we didn't have to increase our nitrogen. We just had to uh, split spread it out a little different. Adjust the timing of the nitrogen a exactly. little bit on it. So, so you're not actually changing... The nitrogen products, or the or the amount of application, or the rate, you're just splitting it up and feeding it, timing wise, different. Mostly, we were splitting it up and changing the timing, but we also uh, took a little bit out of less from the manure. Instead of like four thousand gallons per acre of swine manure, we dropped about thirty two hundred, and we replaced part of that nitrogen that was in the swine manure, put it on the planter or with a burn-down, one of the burn-down herbicides. So we, we have it in the manure, we have it in the burn-down herbicide, we have it on the platter, and then if we need to be, we, we take late spring nitrogen tests, and depending on excess rainfall or whatever, we, we'll side dress beyond that too. 
like what's the what's the actual burn down product? What's the actual planter product? What's the actual side dress product? Just for okay. actual the burn down is usually thirty two percent, either twenty eight or thirty two percent liquid nitrogen with the with the roundup and with our first shot of the the corn herbicide. And then with the planter, we use a 918.9 starter, three and a half gallons of that, which has a little bit of nitrogen, not much. It's liquid. And then we also put about, usually about 10 gallons of uh, 32 on with the planter behind behind the uh, row unit. After, right before the uh, spike closing wheels or with the spike closing So that's closing dribbling wheels. it on top, though. Yeah, it's dribbling on top. But we have spike closing wheels and a drag chain that kind of, I wouldn't say incorporates it, but at least it gets it gets the residue kind of covering it up a little bit. So you've got two, di- did I get that right? You've got two different nitrogen systems on the planter? Yes, we so do. So are you planting one in like a two-by-two two and then the other one in furrow or no, over top? No, we, re- we started out with a two-by-two two and then we went away with that. We were seeing some sidewall compaction with the two-by-two two thing, which was affecting the root growth later on. You dig up the plants and so... That was our first thought, two by two, that's a good thing. You get it in the get it under the soil, you don't have to worry about soil loss. So talking burn. to Dave Moeller, our local guy that really sets up planters with a lot of planter attachments, we went to this system where we, where we dribble on top behind instead of that. So we don't have anything cutting into the soil except the uh actually the uh row opener units. Okay. So so it is all being put on just dribbled behind on top then. Right. Okay. Well, but the actual starter is in furrow on the seed. The starter is in the seed. It's got a Keaton seed firmer. Yeah. It firms that seed in the bottom of the trench and dribbles three and a half gallons. So it's just right, little, really bit. little, a standard starter system. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a lot of those changes over time have been just you've had to just be very observant in what's going on in the soil. Yeah, and and I know that goes for you like even beyond just the soil to the overall environment tell us about how you think about yourself as a farmer kind of what's your mission i guess in what you do as a farmer well of course i like to make a good living but i i want to have the soil in better shape when i'm done with the farmer my career is over than when i started and and i want to be good conservationist and uh keep the soil quality good help the soil health, and improve the water quality. Because really, we are a big uh, uh, reason there's a water quality problem, farmers. I mean, because we farm, I mean, not us specifically, but farmers in general, uh, we're a big part of the watershed that ends up down in the Gulf of Mexico, and they have a epoxia problem. And so we need to do our part to avoid that. And what you can do that is quit sending phosphorus and nitrogen down down the... Uh, Mississippi River. I think it's it's good to hear somebody. I don't know if I want to use the word admitting that, but that's that's what I'm gonna <laughs> that's what I'm gonna use, right? Um, you know, farmers can get really defensive about that, and that's certainly understandable because nobody likes to be blamed for for something like that. But at least recognizing the fact that we manage a huge amount of acres and understanding that that is a, a that is a responsibility that falls on us to make sure that we do the right thing. Exactly. I, I, like you say, I feel real responsible that, about that because we do, as farmers, we cover a lot of acres. And, and, and I've heard farmers say, oh, it's the golf courses or it's the uh, town people that are pouring a lot of nitrogen on the lawns. And, and sure, they contribute too, but we all, we're all part of it. So we just have to take responsibility and do our part to, uh, to make it better. One of the things I think is interesting about Washington County here too is the lay of the land 
we're so connected to so many creeks and rivers and we're an hour from the Missouri River. We're an hour and a half from the Des Moines River, maybe less than that. But also explain to us like the actual local watershed project that you are crucial in getting involved with. How has that brought about and really that direct connection to water? Yeah, we started a local project in maybe 2008 and uh, the West Fork Crooked Creek project, which uh, is my farm goes through or drains into a lot of it. So uh, it was important to me and we had a local group and we ended up getting, uh, we were one of the first uh, uh, five or eight uh, watersheds in the state that were on the water quality initiative. So we got some funding. And so we had a group of us farmers got together and uh, met with the uh, the soil conservation people, NRCS people in Washington, and uh, we decided how we wanted to spend it to try to encourage better wallet quality, cover crop cost sharing. That was one of the main things we do. We also decided we'd uh, be willing to put in a couple of bioreactors, a couple of uh, saturated buffers in the county in this watershed, and so... Uh, we went from there, and uh, I think it's been pretty successful. We've had quite a bit of uh, acceptance. I think Washington County, last I knew, was the number one county in the state for cover crop acres. And you've got a bioreactor yourself, right? Yeah, we put the first one in through the cost-sharing program, and it's actually the first one on a farm south of Interstate 80. There had been a few in northern Iowa, but so it was the first one here. So we, uh, I just talked to the NRCS people, say, hey, I'll, I'll be the guinea pig if you can find a good place for one. So they researched our different farms that I own and, and found a good place for one, and we put it in. And so uh, it's worked out really well over the five years. This is year six, I guess. We've averaged 70% reduction in nitrates from the end. We have an in-box and an out-box, and so we, we've been testing it. Have you seen any problems or issues with it, or has it been pretty well maintenance-free? It's been really pretty well maintenance-free so far. We were able to get a really good quality mix of maple, hard and soft maple wood chips and no branches and no leaves, and they really clean. And I think that was what they've learned from the earlier ones, that you want a really clean wood chip, a certain size, like a two-inch or one-inch square size chip, rather than just, you know, gooding everything from the sawmill that's piled in the pile over in the corner. Sure. Yep. So you actually have to get, yeah, some good material to go into it, but that costs some money, though, too, to do it right. Yeah, I had $4,900 worth of uh, a wood chip, seven loads, seven semi-loads of wood chips. So that was a good share of the cost. So a quick explanation for everyone, too, on Bioreactor. We did a, an episode on that, so definitely check that out as well. But a Bioreactor, basically, the water drains out of the field through the tile line, and it drains into this big pit of wood chips. And through a biological process, the wood chips then, basically the, the biology, in order to break down the wood chips, they utilize the nitrogen out of the water. So the water going into the bioreactor has some nitrogen in it. A lot of our water does. But then the biological process removes a lot of that nitrogen. So when the water leaves, it's clean. And you've been testing a lot of that. Or who's been testing that on your bioreactor? Which organization is testing Well, that? mostly the Iowa Soybean Association got in right away. We we kind of contacted them through their our local watershed, and they've been testing it. And uh, that's that's been a lot of it. Although Iowa State, some other departments of Iowa State uh, have done some projects down there on on the bioreactor. So there's there's different times where they came down and did it also. 
I was just going to ask, is there a remote sensor on there that monitors that, or is somebody physically walking out there and, and taking samples of the water? Yeah, we're walking out there and taking samples. There is such a thing as a remote sensor, but they're really expensive, so nobody's willing to step up and pay for one. Sure. I wasn't either. Don't need to spend that money yet. How how big of an area is your bioreactor actually draining? It drains about 68 acres. Oh, wow. So that's a, that's a large, pretty large watershed, you know, or micro watershed flowing into that bioreactor. Yeah, they, they'd like them, you know, 50 to 75 acres, although I think there's been a bigger one put up since just recently. But that was, that was kind of what they wanted originally, what was... Uh, Iowa State or the NRCS came up with, say, let's get find a place between 50 and 75 acres so we can pull off a tile and, and divert it through there. So we had a place that was 68, so it fit really well. So um, coming from somebody who's never actually seen a bioreactor, I got a question that might be a dumb one, but do they size the bioreactors based off the amount of acres, or is it kind of a one-size-fits-all, you know, as long as it's big enough for 75 acres, it works just fine for 50 acres? No, they'll size them depending on the acres. So there's smaller ones and there's bigger ones. Okay. Sure. My understanding is they'll take water tests and stuff too of your tile line that's existing. If you already have an existing tile line, cause they got to check the flow and all that. Yeah. But I mean, these things are expensive. Like I said, almost $5,000 just in the wood chips. That doesn't count the engineers and the excavator and everything else. I mean, these things get pretty expensive. Mine costs about $15,000. Yeah. But I had 50% cost share on it. So yeah. it was out of pocket about 7,500. Uh, I think the NRCS has really stepped up to the plate here in Washington County, and uh, uh, they encourage, I mean, they believe what their mission is, soil conservation. So they've really taken it to heart. So they've really tried to look for any cost-share methods because they know money's tight for farmers, that we can help people get started in uh, whether it's cover cropping, whether it's uh, putting up a bioreactor or a saturated buffer, any, uh, terracing, any of those things that they can help with cost-share. They find the money to help help people do it. So they're very, very encouraging. That's got to be another big key there to have, you know, the support system that the farmers are, are going into all the time, into that office to have the people there supporting those different things. Yeah, I think they're really key right now in our county yeah. to keep things going. In my eyes, a lot of the key for them is that they just trust the farmers to just do the right thing. And they want to support, like Rob said. They want to say, okay, hey, you're going to go do this thing. Sweet. We'll do everything we can to get you the money. Even if what you're doing is kind of different and not really in the book. You know, you're, we're not going to follow line by line of exactly what the book says. We're going to let you learn and let you be innovative. And I think that's a big issue with just even national policy is it kind of hinders innovation. And it rewards people to be risk adverse. To follow the structure. Follow the structure. Don't right. get outside the lines. And like even even Robin on your rye that you had this year, were you able to get like insurance or anything on that in case you had a failure? Or how do you think that turned out? No, I had that hundred acres. I they raised hybrid rye, and there's there's no uh, crop insurance even available for that apparently in in Iowa or in Washington County at least. So uh, it, it was uninsured, which was fine. I was willing to take that risk. Uh, it averaged 104 bushels the acre. Uh, which was okay. I mean, I'd like to have it better. We all want better. I mean, that was maybe like 200 bushel corn instead of 270, like I'm shooting for. But uh, we were able to sell off a lot of the straw, and, and hopefully if we can get uh, a good amount of cover crops growing here and get get that going, it's going to be okay for me financially. 
So a little context for you. I harvested some rye too. It wasn't necessarily a, a nice hybrid rye like Rob had, but my rye did like 30 bushel. Rob did 104. <laughs> but it's hybrid. That makes this a difference. This is a hybrid well, rye. Mine was a real A. That's like a a girl comparing open up pollinated corn to hybrid corn. I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> did he have a green combine? You had a different one? Rob's got to explain all of his equipment. Well, I've got a new Holland Combine, so that probably made a difference, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Rob's new Holland Combine, and and now, so okay, so now the covers are are back out there. Have you, this was your first time growing rye for actual seed, though? Or explain, you've you've experimented with some barley and stuff like that before. You guys talked about it. Actually, this is the first time I've harvested it. I've always just raised the rye and the other uh, small grains have been for cover crops. And so I burned them off with Roundup and planted into them. So this is the first year I took it to harvest, a small grain. So I I didn't even know how to run combine for small grain because the last time I was, was we raised oats back in the 80s or so when I was first came home from college and farmed with my dad. We always chopped it, put it in the silo. And so I think the last time we raised a small grain for for harvest was probably in when I was a kid. But you get some of your cover crops to be really big, though, too. And uh, we've we've joked around that they're squatchy and... Squatchy. Squatchy, like yeah. seven-foot-tall, massive cover crops. And how has that evolved? Obviously, you don't necessarily do that ahead of corn, but on your beans, you can grow some big cover crop. Yeah, you got more time because we plant corn early as soon as we can, you know, after the 10th or so of April. And uh, the beans, we usually plant them afterwards, and a lot of people flip-flop them, that's okay too, but uh, that's kind of the way we do it, and we allow, that way our cover crops can get a little bigger, and we know there's no danger or hurt hurt to the soybeans by having seven-foot-tall cover crops, whereas corn, that could be a problem, I think. So, so even with, with cover crops that tall, the soybeans will come right through that with no, no issues? They find their way through? They do find their way through. Are you pretty much using all hybrid rye now, or any... No. So, and maybe explain that, that there's VNS rye, there's hybrid rye. Explain that to us. VNS rye or rye I stated, that's the cheapest rye you can get for a cover crop. If you're going to kill it with Roundup and just use it for the soil health and soil building capabilities, I don't see a reason to spend more money on, on a different kind of a rye. So that's what we plant when we're going to kill the Roundup and just plant corner beans into it. Rob, as we kind of start wrapping up here, what is your message, I guess, to other farmers in terms of how can they also emulate what has happened in Washington County? How can they build upon this and be able to adopt, you know, cover crops or, or other conservation practices at the rate that we have here? Well, I think you just have to think about doing the right thing for the soil. And uh, some of the ways you can do that are for reducing tillage, going to no-till in our case, uh, using cover crops. Uh, there's other other things you can do, but just look around, read farm magazines, talk to other farmers that are successfully doing it, and and most farmers will be glad to take a little time to talk and tell you about it. I remember one time I was I was loading pigs one morning, and a neighbor from about four or five miles away came up and wanted to talk to me about cover crops, and it wasn't the most opportune time, but I took the time to to stop and talk to him about cover crops because he hadn't been using them, and now he's using he's got cover crops on all his ground. So I just feel most farmers would do the same thing, even though you're busy and and maybe the timing isn't the best when somebody calls you up or, or stops you to talk about it. You take that chance and that time to do it because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, anything we can do to help the image of the farmer 
uh, in the country that we're really trying to do the right thing for soil quality and water quality. Uh, I think it's that's a benefit, and I'm I just think we should do it. W- one last thing too for you, Rob. What's next? You had rye this year. What else are you scheming on, and what are you going to try next? I haven't thought that far ahead, but I I just try to be open to anything, and so uh, you know I can I look at your farm and see a lot of things you're doing. Those things might be part of it. Uh, we uh, if we were back in the cattle business, we'd we'd have a a reason to do some of those other things that sixty uh, inch rows. And stuff yeah, like that. possibly uh, to u- utilize the cover crops as a feed source instead of just utilize them to uh, return to the soil to uh, help the soil better. So I don't know. Just deer feed otherwise. Huh? Yeah, that's right. I'm open to anything. Let's take a quick break and come right back with Daryl Steele. And now we're back with Daryl Steele. He graduated from Iowa State in 1981 and moved to his family farm in 1985, where he raised hogs for many years. Um, Daryl now um, has his daughter is super involved as well. Their whole family is just very curious and very eager to learn and do research. Um, So it's really cool to see what they've got going on on their farm. When we visited with Daryl, he had a fresh document about Washington County's head start on conservation agriculture. Daryl is one of our, our local county soil commissioners. So they actually help to deploy some of the cost share funding throughout the county. Well, at our commissioner's meeting last uh, Thursday, they handed out the crop year 2020 statewide water quality cover crop applications by county. So they list basically the dollars that each county got with the people that signed up. Washington County, out of $3.5 million, has $387,000. And cost share dollars from the state of Iowa. This is just state of Iowa, Iowa Department of Ag cost share, not the federal, I'm assuming. No. I only counted three or maybe might have been four other counties that were even over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty significant the difference. We'll just jump right to the the ultimate question. Why is Washington County way ahead of the pack? Why it's so big here in Washington County is a is a good question, other than we've been aggressive in doing it. We've wanted to do it. And because of the challenges, whenever you change this is where Mitchell comes in, you change in the biology and the soil whenever you change your tillage system. There's challenges to that, and there's people that wanted to make it work. It wasn't, well, I'll do this if it works, or I'll take my $10 cost share. That's what we used to get from trying no-till. And then if it didn't work, well, that didn't work, so we're not going to do that. But it was the, there was people, producers, like the Reeds and Vitatos over here and others with, associated with Dave Muller that wanted to make it work. So what do we need to do to make it work? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a urge to actually really try to figure it out, make it work. The Reed brothers, of course, were out doing the hard, doing the heavy lifting of in the field. And yeah, they were working with the extension people and trying to figure it out there. But now it's progressed so much further, faster. And uh, and we'll get back to the the documentation on that. But you mentioned the ten dollar cost share for tillage as well for reducing for no tillage. Till. Was that there from the beginning of this, or do you remember when that came about? Oh, I don't remember when that came about. It had been in the 70s, I believe. Oh, they, so it was early. They now. offered that as an incentive 
much like this incentive for, for cover crops. It was incentive for people to try it. And I seem to remember it was $10 an acre is what they'd pay you to try, try that. When, that's good. It's an incentive to try it. But when you had a 10 15% yield drag on it, who wants to do that again? I don't care if you're paying me $10 an acre. So that's where individual producers, like the Reeds and others, with their contacts and everybody uh, networking kind of together, came up with, what do we need to do to make that work? And that's when we started putting attachments on planters. So, Zach, that boils back to the, it's not just an economic thing, but the logistics and the economics is what all this boils down to and figuring out how to make it work the right way. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the big things, too, is the networking, right? We talked about that earlier today and just that how important that is that everybody's on board for the same thing to try to achieve the same goals and everybody wants to make it work. Well, then you put the, uh, somebody like a Dave Moeller in the mix who could get the equipment and he could give the advice, how you put it on, he could set up planners and just being local here, although he's going great big wide now, but he was here. And he was an important part of that. I mean, getting the equipment to the people and how you put it on. And I mean, that planter there, there's all kinds of different things on there when it, then and when it looked like when we got it here. I was just going to ask you if that planter sitting behind us, if Dave had had that in his shop. No, Dave didn't have it in his shop. We do it all. I'm fortunate. I've got a uh, son-in-law and my daughter over here who are very, very good at this technical precision stuff. Okay. I mean, I'll put them up against anybody on that stuff and they basically put that planter together. Sure. Awesome. And you've still got hogs. I, no, I tell you, we liquidated them. Our last ones went to town on, what, three weeks ago? Oh, what? so you just got I, out I, of the hogs. We farrowed and finished, and then in 98, we went to just buying uh, wiener pigs, and I've been doing that till, till now. Is that going to affect your operation at all when it comes to the, you know, not having the hogs there to complement the row crop? Will that change any of your practices? Not really. My hog operation wasn't that big compared to where my grain farming is now. I mean, we didn't have that much manure to cover that many acres. Um, for our manure source, we're fortunate we're hooked up with a turkey grower. We get a lot more acres covered with turkey litter than what we do hog manure even when I was raising them. How are you incorporating that turkey litter? Uh, nature. It goes on top. You, it goes right on top. And the yeah. nitrogen finds its way down in there. Are you trying to time that with a good rain? No, not so much on the turkey manure. We just get it out there when we can. Okay. Um, it's more in the organic form. So it needs to be broken down and it's, it's not real volatile and it's released over time. I quite honestly like putting the turkey manure ahead of beans. I'm getting a shot of big shot of phosphorus and some potassium and everything else that comes in the manure. So then are you adding more fertilizer before you come back with corn the following year? Yeah, m mostly potash. Our phosphorus source is our manure. We'll add some potash and we really uh, really like AMS for making these cover crops, planting back into a grass back into a grass. The, the AMS has been a big key for us on that. Once we figured that one out. Again, a little caveat on that. AMS is ammonium sulfate. And we talked earlier about sulfur and how important that is. We've really had to learn about that recently in terms of managing that fertility and getting the nitrogen to work. Because like I said, planting corn into a grass, you got a lot of nitrogen tie-up. The, the AMS is basically I'm feeding the bugs. 
Um, they like the ammonium form of nitrogen. They like sulfur and they need phosphorus are the three big drivers of biology the, of the macronutrients. And those, I've got the phosphorus in the manure, but the, we need the, AM, the sulfur and the nitrogen in there for that. And we spread that on in the spring ahead of the corn. And that has really helped that ugly corn syndrome or whatever, there's various names for it. You just got to say that, and I know what you yeah, mean. Yeah, the ugly corn syndrome. <laughs> we know what we're talking about. And that, about. to me, and, and Mitchell's helped on that, that's all a biology cycle. And we're just matching nutrients to the biology, to the crop needs is what we're trying to do. So you're really, you're trying to keep the, keep the soil moving, keep it alive, keep the microbes moving. So I want to kind of pivot 100% here. Wouldn't that be a 180? 180%. No, 180 degrees, I guess. 100% pivot. 100% 100 of 180 degree. Okay, yeah. Okay. Okay. So we've continuously heard about this Oscar Steele guy. And Oscar Steele is your dad. Correct. But tell us more about who is Oscar Steele. We grew up out in Highland Township. It's all highly erodible. I mean, all the stuff we have is. And dad was always very conservation-minded. I mean, we had to plan on the contour and never have rows going up and down the hill. And back then, it was in a rotation because he had hogs and cattle both. So you're in a rotation and working that in as far as the conservation. And that's where I got started on it. And he wasn't the first on the no-tail, but he was early on it. So that's where I got started and... You know, we had some disaster. I mean, first thing you did was try no-tailing in the sod. Well, now we know we don't want to do that because we didn't have Roundup then, trying to kill it with Paraquat. Oh, my goodness. The sprayers back then, that, uh, <laughs> it's a good thing we didn't know what we were getting into because what you don't know, you don't know, and you just kept on going. And some of those things would be really tough here today. Yeah. But he... I guess he had a desire to make it work. Okay, this didn't work this year. What do we got to do to do this better? And it was that mentality throughout the county that kept things going. One thing that my first time I tried the cover crops, what got me excited about cover crops and wanting to make it work was what it did for erosion. That, I mean, aside from the biology, the water quality, it was erosion was my number one thing after the first year we did that and the way it held that soil. Um, even... Even with terraces, you'll get soil movement into the terrace. You shorten the slopes, all you're doing. Well, this really cuts down on soil movement. And it just, with all the biology, and it, it just ties the ground together a lot better. Sure. When, when was the first time you tried cover crop? When was your first year cover cropping? Six, seven years ago. And what was the thing that made you, like, go and adopt that? So, obviously, you understood okay there was maybe some erosion control here but what pushed you over the edge to say yep let's try it and how big how big of an area did you I try? did it for erosion but what really pushed me over the edge is what it does for the biology in the soil when you see the earthworms just flourishing you see the structure coming back to the ground even better than what we have in no-till um that's what uh, the reason I want to keep doing it how long did it take you you'd say if you, if you were to guess before you could really visibly notice that? Oh, on some of it, I saw it the first year. The right way that away. rye was, we planted in the fall and I was planting beans. I let it get about a foot and a half high that time. And 
when the planter would go through, you know, it'd flick up a piece of soil or around a rye root. I'd, I'd, wow, that is, that soil's different. Hmm. So it's just holding together and getting that, we call it, you know, kind of a, the chocolate cake kind of structure and the cottage cheese, you know, the guys would call it. But really that's the soil aggregates and the structure. This whole conservation and wanting to do the covers or not or whatever, whatever tillage system you're in, whatever system you're in, your soil biology gets used to that. And when you change it, you're changing biology. There's still four R's just different and understanding that you're changing biology when you do this. So you need to change your nitrogen, your, your nutrient plan to match what you're doing. I, that's been the biggest thing for me is to, to get a handle on that. And that takes time. <clears throat> we, my daughter rented a farm and I thought I knew this cover crop. Boy, we knew this sucker. We were going to nail that thing. <clears throat> it had been tilled beforehand. Fall tillage, spring tillage had been tilled. We go in there and we no-till it and we put covers on it. And the biology wasn't there. We overwhelmed it. And I, that was a disaster. It just didn't work out. We changed it too quick. Now, as you've been able to, to kind of overcome some of the initial struggles, what's some of the next things you're working on? I know you've looked into some different diversification and things like that. And now you don't have the hogs to worry about. So now what's the next focus? Well, we've discussed about, I mean, we, my daughter and her husband do have a small cow herd here and we're, we're not ready to take another step with that, but implementing that into some acres across here, we've talked about that. Um, We've looked at more diverse and we've tried some more diverse covers, but we've always tried them the wrong year because it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, it just, every day you back up to the default, cereal rye, cereal rye, just back up to there. You know that's going to work. You plant it in December and it'll come up. I've never planted anything in December. We have. What do you think, what do you think the balance is, though, of like really pushing and driving only yield versus only max conservation versus the profitability component of this too. How do you, how do you balance all of that in your mindset? I don't know as I do. <laughs> Perfect answer. <laughs> I mean, we have discussions amongst my kids that are with me. What's the economics of this? How do you, how do you make that pay? How do you justify that expense? When you got to pay the land rent, we are. How, I mean, it's it's tough to make that really go, and it's not a instant. It's not like drinking a can of pop and you feel better. It's a longer term thing to make it work. Well, and and like you you hit on earlier, it's not easy to measure. Right. You know, you can't just say you can't put a score on it, put a number on it, put a dollar value at the end of it because it's a difficult thing to measure. So there's, it's probably not an easy answer to that. Yeah, and uh, it'd be, I don't have an easy answer for that. I just, there's enough things out there, positives to do it, that I want to keep doing it. Yep. And I want to make it work and try improving on it each year if I can. And that was farmer Daryl Steele. Just a reminder that I actually made a video about our trip to Washington County on my Millennial Farmer YouTube channel. Um, that's actually been reposted also to the Fieldwork YouTube channel, which is Fieldwork Talk over on YouTube. So you can check that video out if you want to learn a little bit more about all the folks that we're interviewing here on this series. 
And we also have another new video up about a farmer from Washington County who's really on the bleeding edge, Steve Berger. And when Zach was down, we were recording the original content here for our mini series. Uh, we were just unable to get met up with Steve. Um, he was right on the edge of where the derecho came through. So he had a lot of damage around his farm that he had to tend to. But uh, luckily, I was able to sit down with him. He is one of the most innovative farmers in this area for sure. Cover crop for over 20 years. Check it out at Fieldwork Talk on our YouTube channel. All right, Zach. Exciting part of the podcast here where we get to listen to a voicemail. Mitchell and Zach uh, Brent Woods here, a small agriculture producer from South Central South Dakota. I'd like to thank you guys for your podcast and all of uh, your sponsors and people that you have on. A faithful listener here. Just wondering what you guys think about soil health practices on perennial rangeland and uh, also perennial pasture land. Uh, we hear a lot of talk about uh, regenerative practices and sustainable practices on cropland. Wondering what you guys are, do you have anything in the works for stuff on perennial grassland for grazing livestock? Thank you. Well, Zach, that, that was a really good question and appreciate the call in that, you know, we talk about conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture, mostly around row crop and talking about reducing tillage or adding cover crops in a row crop situation. But in perennial crops and in pasture ground, it's really important to be regenerative as well. Um, Michael Vitito is going to be on an upcoming episode here, so be sure to tune in on that. He's utilizing rotational grazing to be able to implement more regenerative systems. Uh, I think that's a great opportunity for your pasture ground uh, to be able to make sure that you're rotating those cattle and really taking care of that grass so it can grow back appropriately and have a lot of vigor to it. Yeah, I'm going to lean on you, Mitchell, here, and um, and guys like Michael, because obviously I don't have any livestock, so it's interesting conversation to me. They answer a lot of questions that uh, you know I, I don't have the answers to. Well, that's it for today. Our show is produced by Annie Baxter with lots of great help this season from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media. Ellie Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to the operations staff at American Public Media, who helped us out with recording and mixing this season. We are, once again, at Fieldwork Talk on all of the usual social media channels. And don't forget that we love hearing from you guys. Please give us a call with your comments or questions at 651-228-4810. That is 651-228-4810. Thanks for listening. Come back, because it's always sunny in 75 in Washington County. We're not done talking about it. We'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>